we are going to be talking today about the second coming of Christ. And uh, we're going to talk, you know, through some details. We'll talk through some things about which Christians have disagreement. But if we could take one thing away from today, Jesus is returning. Jesus is returning. This is a good news Sunday school class that he, he is returning. Uh, we don't know all the details. We know he's coming back and it will be really good. All right? So there are a lot, there's a lot more that can be said than that. But nothing said should distract from that, that, that he is returning and in this is our hope. So um, this is going to be the first of two classes on the second coming. All right, this is on sort of the second coming proper, the, the, you know, talking about him coming. And the next one will talk about sort of um, how does the New Testament talk about signs related to the second coming and our preparation for the second coming. So we're going to talk about that next week. Uh, but this week, talking about our Lord's return. Uh, so we're going to describe the great hope of the church in the desire that it become more and more of our great hope as well. Um, and probably for many of you in here, if you've been in the church, uh, if you've been in churches in the United States for 10 years or longer or whatever, there'll probably be some surprises in here as well. Um, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there as, as we go. Um, so no, page one uh, begins with just Orthodox Christianity. Uh, there is a great deal of agreement across all Christian um, sects on what is going to happen when the Lord returns. So there is uh, the, the reality of the Lord's return is agreed upon by Christians of all times and of many stripes. Um, quoting here at the top, no matter what their differences on the details, all Christians who take the Bible as their final authority agree that the final and ultimate result of Christ's return will be the judgment of unbelievers, the final reward of believers, and believers will live with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth for all eternity. So this is agreed upon truth. Now once we get beyond that, in terms of, well, what events precede His coming? What should we expect right before His coming? Sort of a chronology of the end times. Well, about those things, Christians have a number of differences. And let me just say that we can have differences about those things as well. Right? The Scripture is clear that the Lord is returning, and about that we should not have differences. That, that's, that's, a, that's a biblical truth that, that is a definer of orthodoxy. Uh, but beyond that, if we, if we do have some differences, even differences from what some of the issues that I'll talk about this morning, that's okay. We can, we can agree to love the Lord together and anticipate His return together. Um, so down to uh, the middle of the page, there are statement of faith. So this, this is the statement of faith of our church as well as of our denomination in reference specifically to Christ's return. And so here's what it says. At the appointed time, known only to God, Jesus Christ will return to the earth in power and glory as judge and king to whom every knee will bow. Christ's personal, physical, and visible return is the blessed hope of all who trust in him. I think I think our our statement of faith is clear. I find that it it cultivates worship in my heart. Like yes, amen, as we read these things, and it doesn't really uh, 
go much further than what you would just say is just Orthodox Christianity. Um, it's hard to build a denomination if you're going to require that people believe certain end time positions. You know, so it's this is this is just an Orthodox statement. So uh, basic scriptural support for the second coming. I'm not going to read all the verses that I have there, but the second one, Hebrews 9:28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Isn't that a great verse? And it, it connects his first coming and his second coming together. Like he came the first time to deal with sin. Aren't we glad that his first coming wasn't his second coming? That he came the first time not just to judge all sinners. Because we would have been on the, the wrong side of that equation. He came the first time to deal with the sin of his people. So now we can look forward to his second coming when he comes to fully save us. And then just the manner of his coming is spoken in Acts 1.11 as the disciples witnessed one of the most astounding things ever witnessed on this planet as Christ ascended before them. So they were talking with him and he was, he was lifted up out of their sight and they couldn't see him anymore, and just like you and me, they kind of stood there. Whoa. I mean, they had to have been, literally had to be open-mouthed, astonished. And the, and the angel came down like, come on, you dummies, stop staring at the clouds, you know? Um, and I just think, well, that's what I would have been doing. Um, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Oh, I don't know. Why would I be standing? Jesus, did you... You didn't see this, you know? But why do you stand looking into heaven? This was, not, this was not making fun of them. This was saying, get busy with what he told you to do. You've got, you've got a mission until he comes back. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So what we're anticipating is the bodily, physical, visible return of Jesus to earth in the same way that he was taken up before. All right, second page, and on to the one that will potentially shake some here as we talk about this. But hang with me, all right? Um, number two, the Lord will return once. There is no rapture. All right? The Lord will return once. There is no rapture. Now, for many of you, you've, you've heard that there is going to be a rapture, and there is room in Christianity to believe in a rapture. This is not an unorthodox position or a position that puts people outside of Christianity at all. Um, however, I want to just explain the way that I see the Scriptures and where the idea of rapture came from. All right. So to understand the idea of the rapture, we have to understand a little bit of history of where this theology came from, all right? So let's back up and talk about how do Christians read their Bibles. And there's a kind of two basic ways that Christians see the Bible as holding together, as fitting together. How, we, we all can kind of see, there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's even called the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know? 
But even there, like, well, there's some differences in the Old Testament. Like, it seemed like you had this sort of season in the Garden of Eden before there was the fall. And then, and then you had this time before Abraham was called. But then once Abraham was called, like, then a people began to develop. But then Moses came with the law, but they didn't have a king. But then King David came, and then they had a king. And So how does all this fit together? So there's two different ways of seeing it. One's called covenant theology and one's called dispensationalism. We could, and maybe we will, do a whole Sunday school semester on covenant theology so we can understand what that means. All right? I will say that's the perspective from which I see the Scriptures, and I think intuitively that's the perspective that most of you bring to the Scriptures. And I would also say that's the perspective you ought to bring to the Scriptures. Okay? So dispensationalism um, looks at the Scriptures as a series of dispensations as a series of distinct time periods where God deals differently with people in each of those successive time periods. All right? Covenant theology sees differences but sees unity as well and says, yep, God deals with people according to covenant. So there was a covenant between him and Adam and Eve. And then there was a covenant that he had with Noah. And then there was a covenant that he had with Moses. And then the Davidic covenant, and now the new covenant. And so we see it as covenants which unfold one on top of the other with some differences, but not the hard lines of distinction that characterize dispensationalism. All right. If you got that, that's great. If you didn't, that's okay too. Um, that's a, that's a, a mouthful and a lot that, uh, that we could go into. But I want to point out dispensationalism as a way of seeing the Scripture was first developed in 1857 by John Nelson Darby and then was popularized through something called the Schofield Study Bible. Most of you probably haven't interacted directly with the Schofield Study Bible, but that study Bible was so well marketed in the U.S. that it defined several generations of Christian thinking in the United States. And it was in that Bible that the idea of the rapture was first taught. First taught. So there, there weren't Christians that believed in a rapture as we understand it today when the book of Revelation was written or for 1,800 years after. So being the theological newcomer does not necessarily mean it's wrong but it certainly has to prove itself in light of 1,800 years of the church believing differently. Um, and I do not think it has done so at all. Um, I think it is the, a newcomer, and I think it will go uh, away with history. Now, the, dif the difficulty with all of this is that normative evangelical thought in the U.S. is to believe in the rapture. And, and that, is for, that is for two reasons, and, and one of them is really good, okay? So, um, the church in America has been sort of under pressure from the culture to not hold fast to the word for a long time, definitely through the 1900s, right? And, and churches in America have been abandoning the word. And that's called theological liberalism. And so we're seeing churches leaving the word. And so evangelical churches have tended to put the flag in the ground 
and say, if the Bible says it, I believe it, end of debate. Amen. I love that. That's good. Uh, that's, that's the right. I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. That's where I want to have the fight. Um, the problem is you need to be sure that the Bible says it. And that's the point that was missing right here with the rapture. It got brought in to this body of teaching that kind of everybody got arm to arm to defend the Bible. And there wasn't as much time taken to say, hey, wait, does the Bible really teach this? So the, the good desire to defend the Scripture and the prolific use of the Schofield Study Bible brought together this thing where, all right, most, most evangelical churches in America teach the rapture. I, it's not a historic teaching of the church. And I don't believe you can really base it in Scripture. I don't think you can at all. They, they obviously do think that they can. I'll show, show you. But um, a couple of things we're not really going to cover very much in this class that you might have heard some of these terms when it comes to the end times. Uh, we're not going to cover them because this is not a position I believe is biblical. But once you believe in a rapture, then you've got to kind of say, well, when's the rapture going to happen? Is it going to happen before the tribulation? If, if you believe the rapture is coming before the tribulation, that is, Jesus is going to come rescue his church, take us to heaven before the tribulation. You are a pre-trib. You believe in the rapture before the tribulation. If you believe that Christ is going to come in the middle of the tribulation to rescue the church, you're a mid-trib. If you believe that the, the Lord's going to come at the end of the tribulation to rescue his church, you're a post-trib. All right? These are all terms out there. If you were to study uh, the end times, you're going to run into those terms. I would seek to put you at ease and say, you don't need to worry about any of those terms because they're all based on this false notion that there's going to be this secret rapture that happens. I don't believe that there's going to be a secret rapture that happens. All right? Here's what I believe is their best case for scriptural support at the bottom of page 2 and on to page 3. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. All right? This is the rapture verse. I've, I've personally been on the receiving end of teaching that this speaks of the rapture. Um, so the, the teaching again, the Lord will return. He'll return like halfway to the air, call the believers up with him, take us all to heaven while some bad stuff happens on earth, and then, and then the second coming will happen. So even those who believe in the rapture still believe in the second coming. They just see the rapture as something before then. Okay? I think this passage is talking about the second coming of Christ. There's a couple reasons. Um, how many of you have been, been taught the rapture. Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so you've, how many of you watched the movie, right? Like, or read the books? Like, you know how this works, right? Like all of a sudden somebody's just driving down the road and their passenger's sitting in the car and all of a sudden, ah, there's no one driving the car, right? And so, oh, and you got to reach over and you go, where did that guy go? And, um, and there were even some jokes in, like in our house, you know, like, if, if I call and, and Tiffany's not home, oh, gosh, 
so glad to get you. I thought you were raptured, and I missed it, you know. So the idea is a kind of secret coming of the Lord. He comes, and only his church is brought away. The world doesn't even know that he came. So two, two things in here, just this passage, that I don't think fit with that. The first is the sound of his coming. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. If I was trying to write something that made it sound like his coming was loud, right? Clearly, this is intending that when he comes, all will hear. It's not secret. But the other thing that is helpful is just to note what this verse doesn't say. The verse doesn't say what happens once he catches us up in the air. And the question is, he catches us up, do we then all come down to earth together? Or do we then all go to heaven together? The verse doesn't explicitly say. The rapture folks would say, well, he catches us up in the air and then takes us to heaven. But actually, there's some really good reason to think the otherwise, that it's the other way. So when it says... Forgive me, we're going to go Greek on this for a minute. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The word to meet is apentasis. And I've got a quote in there that um, I'm just going to read. Apentasis is a technical term used in the New Testament to describe a public welcome given by a city to a visiting dignitary. People would ordinarily leave the city to meet the distinguished visitor, then go back with him into the city. All Paul is saying here is that the raised and transformed believers are caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord as he descends from heaven, implying that after this joyful meeting, they will go back to the earth. So there would be sent, if, if Caesar was coming to your town, you don't wait for Caesar to come to you. You send your dignitaries out on the road 20 miles away to meet him and pay homage to him, and then you escort Caesar back to your town. That's how it works. That's the picture right here. We will be caught up. We will meet the Lord in the air as a kind of welcoming party, honor party to the Lord, and then he will descend and rule and reign upon the earth. So that particular meaning of to meet, as to go out and then return. That's how it, that verb is only used three times in the New Testament. The other two, that is clearly how it's used, as a party that goes out and meets to then return. I think it makes sense to interpret it that way here as well. Okay. My last point about the rapture is it's okay. <laughs> um, if you're like me, uh, you, you, you have it at times, and maybe still do, put great hope in the rapture. And first of all, let me say again, uh, you can still believe in that and be here and we'll love you. It's okay. <laughs> all right? Um, but I would seek as a pastor to just transfer your hope. I don't want to destroy it. I just want to transfer it from a rapture, which I don't think is biblical, to the second coming, which I know is biblical. And to say, we can all look forward to Jesus' return. That, 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 is, that is the hope of the church. And I'll also say, if I'm wrong, I'll be really glad to be wrong. Like, if he's coming to rapture us out of the tribulation, amen and thank you. But that is not 
the New Testament direction and flow with regards to tribulation and persecution and the church. That would be, that is against the flow of how he sought to prepare us for what to expect on earth. So, while I don't think hope in the rapture makes sense, we can have hope. He is returning. It will be good. It will be great. So, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. All right. Should I dare take questions at this point? Yeah, I think I should. I think I should. Paul. So the verse ten that talks about one that is sold who will be sold in the field and one that's present. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. So those who are alive are brought up to meet the Lord in the air. If you want to say that we're raptured to meet the Lord in the air, I'm comfortable with the term except the term comes with baggage of, of what else could it mean. So, yep, we will be caught, those who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That will happen. And then we'll descend with him as that earthly welcoming party to its sovereign as he sets up his kingdom and rules and reigns. So, yeah. The view of the rapture? The lack of a rapture? <laughs> yeah, well, that would be nice. No, we do believe in um, Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. Um, so I would probably point you to the I, well, I would obviously I, I point you to the books that I've recommend. Probably Hokema's, uh "The Bible in the Future" is the best one. Um, I mean, that's yeah. Well, you can see down at the bottom of page five. That's the guy I quoted for that. So that's the guy I was studying for this. So he yeah he's the one. The problem is um, historically because there's not this is a this is a newcomer theologically. It's just you, you, you can't define yourself against something that ha doesn't exist yet. So th it doesn't have a particular name. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different millennial views, which we'll get to in a few weeks, as to what does the millennium mean. Those are very distinct from these, from this one. Um, yeah. Thank you. I could wholeheartedly recommend, if you have the time and interest to listen to a Wayne Grudem's podcast, uh, Systematic Theology that Wayne Grudem wrote is what we followed at the Pastors College. I'm 98% uh, on board, which is a lot for a massive book like that. Probably uh, uh, half of that remaining 2% actually comes in around the millennium, which we'll get to in a few weeks. Um, but he, he's just He's just good, and he defends what he's saying from the scriptures very, very well. Uh, and he would be 100% with us in saying, yeah, the rapture is a theological newcomer and is, is not really defensible once 
once he gets to the scripture. So, yeah. So the question is, given this, is it safe to think that we're in tribulation now? Yes, it's 100% safe to think that um, because we are. So the, the church age, not just the end of the church age, but the church age entirely is defined by several things, and one of those is tribulation. And at the end of the church age, we would see a specific time of increased tribulation, such as the world has never known, it says, right? So we, we, we see that coming, but that's kind of like, you remember like the prophetic ripples idea, like prophecy that repeats and repeats, like tribulation defines the whole church age and defines the end. The spirit of antichrist that would draw people away from the true Christ defines the whole church age and specifically at the end also. So that makes it kind of hard in a certain way to know right where we are in the church age, like how bad does tribulation have to get before it's the tribulation? I, frankly, friends, I think that's on purpose. The Lord would seek to prepare us to live in our day, to expect these things, and has told us that no man knows the day or the hour. So, so to say tribulation is now and probably going to increase uh, is, still doesn't tell us exactly where we are in the, in the grand scheme. Mm -hmm. We do, we do. It's really hard, though. Yes. So you could say things like, in the 20th century, more Christians were killed than in all other centuries combined. I think that is pretty much a true statement. Um, there's also more Christians than there were. There's just more people. Like, more people died in the 20th century of all faiths than died in all the... Because of how many people, this population explosion that we've had. So that's where I get a little tentative to try to to try to read to to try to read. All right, is are we on that upswing? Like we see a decline in Western culture, but I'll tell you that Ethiopia is seeing revival, and I don't have vision, godlike vision, that could say, "Oh, now is the time when things are categorically worse." Worse here does not mean worse. There are more Christians in China than there are people in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. Glory. Glory. So, so there's a lot of good happening. Anyway, so I, have a, I, I, I do struggle to... I would encourage us not to read the headlines and try to place where we are, but rather to say, yes, it's persecution, Let's pray for our brothers and sisters who are under more of it than we are. Let's wake up knowing that we have an enemy and trusting the Lord. Let's be aware of the spirit of Antichrist that would pull people and churches away from the word. Um, and let's trust the Lord with the timing and hope in the second coming. So that was, that was a great question. Glad you asked.
Yes. So basically, you had in the early 1900s, the main lines began to trend towards the abandonment of Scripture, a trend which continues today. And those that decided not to go there were called fundamentalists and said, no, this is where we stand. It's good to stand there. But unfortunately, over time, the standing there has brought in other extra-biblical things. For example, to be fundamentalist in some circles means that you only read the King James Version of the Bible, that all dancing is a sin, that card playing is a sin. I'm not joking. I grew up very closely associated with some that believed all of this, um, that rock music, that drums are sinful, you know? That, yes, says our drummer. <laughs> um, and, and so, but you can understand when you're on the back foot, when you're on the defensive, in, in a sense there wasn't a lot of time to get into which of these are right and wrong because the attack is so, was so strong. So I'm grateful if it wasn't for that fundamentalist movement the church in America would have just lost the word entirely. So let's stand on the word, but let's make sure it is also the word that we're standing on and not maybe some of these other cultural things or slight, okay, we don't have to believe in a rapture. We, we do need to believe in the second coming. Like that, we will stand there and, and say that's truth revealed. So, thanks, Dan. This is the section of teaching that's, this and the millennium in a couple weeks are going to be the two biggest question places. So I'm glad to take more time here. We have already given this two weeks. So. So Tiff is asking a question about church history and older writers that people could look back on. Um, I enjoy church history. I'm not an expert in church history. And to get to be a, uh, to be able to speak fluidly about any given doctrine and where was it at in church history is a, a lifetime of study of church history. I'm not, and I'm not quite there. I will say that the historic position of the church has been to be anticipating the second coming, and Augustine just foremost among them. Basically, you want to know the historic position of the church on, I mean, 98% of things, go read Augustine, and he's, he's got it right. Um, articulating things like the Trinity and the canon of Scripture and the stuff that is you know, still handed down today and the second coming of Christ as well. Um, let me pick up again with what Lee had, had asked about and, and just talk about, uh, I guess, a church history fact. Throughout church history, the church has, with, with routine, decided that they are in the end times. Okay? So uh, this, is, this is a normative thing and an expected thing, right? Like, Jesus said to expect certain things, so we're reading our Bibles, and we go, okay, persecution is increasing where I live. I think it must be the end times. Um, and so there's actually a book that came out that said, the end times are here again. Um, 
um, where it tracks the church's response to various crises that the church faced. So, you know that the Roman Empire fell, right, to the Goths and Visigoths, the, the, the barbaric tribes, right, came in and, and took over the Roman Empire. The, at that time, the Roman Empire had Christianized. This was after Constantine. The religion of the Roman Empire was Christianity. So the entire Mediterranean world was under a Christian government. When Rome fell, it felt like the end of the world to the Christians. It just was inconceivable. It had been hundreds upon hundreds of years that Rome was the power, and that power that had risen was now seemingly in the hands of the Lord, if you want to say it that way. And to see that fall, Christians were shaken. Um, that's one example. You could go forward to your... 1050, something like that, where Constantinople was the new uh, capital of the new Eastern Roman Empire. They picked up the mantle when Rome fell, so they kind of thought that that was the Roman Empire out of Constantinople. And so they're, they're looking back over 1,200 years of ruling the world. And it was a Christianized empire. They had beautiful Christian architecture. They were surrounded by Islamic States, right? It's right there at the, on, in Turkey at the edge of the Middle East. And when those Islamic states took down Constantinople, it felt like the end of the world again to Christians. Um, that's how it would feel if America fell to many of us. And that would not also be the end of the world. Um, I mean, I love our country. <laughs> but from an eschatological perspective, there is no reason whatsoever to think that the fall of one power necessarily means that the end of time is upon us. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. So here's the, the motive. Yeah. The, the motive that... See, so many of... All of our motives are mixed, right? The motives are good, right? So what dispensationalists tend to read the prophets of the Old Testament literally. I've done a lot of talking about the use of symbolism in Scripture. So they would read things like... And I... I sorry, I can't quote, but... Something like, you know, in the last day, Israel will be restored and the temple will be rebuilt. Well, they take that to be, well, then in the last day, Israel will be restored. And the temple will be rebuilt. Um, at this point, friends, the rebuilding of, an, a temple, of a temple would be an abomination. Christ is the temple. He is the final temple. There is no more earthly temple except one that would compete with Christ which is why I hate dispensationalism in that way, because I think it dethrones Christ from some of what he's done. But they have a good desire to read the Scripture, say, well, God said Israel's going to be reforged. Well, when is Israel going to be reforged? Well, probably God needs to get the church out of here, but still have church history, hap still have history happen for a while. During that time, they're going to say, oh, the church left. They must have been right. 
Israel will reform, they'll rebuild the temple, more Jewish people will be saved. So it's, it's out of that desire to see a literal interpretation of passages like that that they then have to come in and say, okay, well then we've got we've to get the church out of here somehow. How are we going to do that? Oh, well maybe, maybe the Lord does come in. So it's all kind of woven together there. But that's where covenant theology comes in and says, well, actually what the scripture talks about is, is things like not all Israel is Israel. Like even in the Old Testament, there was visible Israel, but true Israel are those united to God by faith. It has always been that way. It is that way today. We are true Israel from a biblical perspective. We teach our kids, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. That's a covenant theology song that says we are Jewish from the spiritual perspective of being sons of Abraham. Um, and God's not going back to some perceived way of doing it before, which isn't even how he did it before. So, okay. So something like Revelation 8 or something like, is it 144,000? Can, can I just say, can we get there in a few weeks? Okay, awesome. <laughs> Listen, um, this is so much fun for me to prepare for. That's the second, uh, last week I had to say that to someone else about another passage in Revelation, which is to say, I'm learning as I go and studying as I go and I'm not in Revelation 8 yet. Yes. Yes, yes. I think you're asking a, a question that's a little out of my wheelhouse. Um, what's the effect been outside the church of this? Um, here's what I'd say. Um, I think when we, we the very broad church, say things like, as was said, Hitler's the Antichrist. Stalin's the Antichrist. Um, hey, the rise of the Soviet Union means that the end times are near. Hey, the refounding of Israel means that the end times are near. I think the world looks at us like we're a little loony, and I think they're right to look at us that way. Because what we're trying to do is to take what we find here and, and base our faith on world events. And we're really not called to do that. We're really called to say, what, what does the Lord say let us remain faithful. Let us leave the timing of such things to the Lord, 
who knows such things. So, it's not wrong to look foolish in front of the world. Let's look foolish for the right reasons. So let's look foolish by saying, the Lord's returning and you need to repent. That will sound foolish to this world. But that's the gospel message. The Lord is coming as king. And he will judge the world when he comes. And that includes you. Have you repented and turned to Christ? This, this, the, the gospel is offensive and foolish. So let's be foolish for the gospel. And if we are wondering about these other things, I can't say it's wrong to wonder and to try to put those pieces together. But when we start writing books on it and movies about it, that's, oh gosh, we're kind of starting to look stupid for our, because we are. <laughs> Rather than, you know, fools for Christ. So, all right. Got 10 minutes left. We're going to just do questions or going to move on, yeah? That's right. Slight and momentary in light of the eternal weight of glory that we look forward to. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. Good. All right. Well, So Jesus is the head of a new people. He is the second Adam. There are two races, the race of Adam, of which we are all, and the race of Christ, the second Adam, of which those who are saved are a part. That's God's plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Christ. His plan is not to have two distinct peoples, the Jewish people who trusted him and the Gentile people that trusted him. Not at all. It is, it is one people that he has been calling. And all who are called will be called sons of Abraham. And he will have as many descendants as the stars in the sky. Um, and that's not limited to blood. It was never limited. 
the blood, which is why the Abraham's firstborn isn't even counted among them, but his secondborn. So, and over and over throughout history. So, yeah, good. Okay, well, we've got um, just a few minutes. I will cover a little bit of this and we'll pick up. So characteristics of Christ's return. Um, first of all, let's talk about the timing of his return. Uh, so he will return, you ready? I'm going to tell you, at the right time. Okay? He will return at the right time. Uh, actually, that's kind of a funny way to say it, but it should be incredibly good news to us, incredibly comforting news to us. Um, God knows what he's doing, and Christ will return when God says, it is time. So, the right time is the Father's time. Specifically the Father's. is not the Spirit and is not the Son. But Mark 13, 32 says, Concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So this is the Father's plan. By the way, this is how the Trinity tends to work, where the Father has the vision and the plan. The Son is executing it by the power of the Spirit. So there's perfect unity. They're not like, oh man, we have to do what the Father says again. It is, it is the Father who, who plans. This is part of Him being the Father. So, yeah. Woo-wee! Um, well, here's what it says. It says the Son doesn't know. Right, right. This is a good question. Do you have a question about the question or a comment? Okay. Okay, great. I don't know your, the answer to your question. I'll give you some thoughts. One very plausible thought is that this speaks of his time on earth. Um, Christ was limited in many ways while on earth. There are a few places where it seems like he was omniscient, even on earth, that he knew everything. Like when he told Philip, I saw you under that tree before you even came here. Ooh. <laughs> um, some will say that that's the omniscience of Christ breaking back through. He, can, he knows all things. Some will say that was given by the Spirit as a distinct, here, you're still a human, but I'm going to give you this. Um, I'm not entirely sure on that. Is Christ all-knowing? We have to say, yes, Christ is all-knowing because Christ is God. But within the mystery of the Trinity, how does that relationship work and play out where there's perfect unity but the father has this father role 
um, I will say at the very least we can say Christ on earth didn't know. That's clear. Does he know now? I'd be inclined to say yes, actually, in light of the fact that he is now, we're going to get here in a couple weeks, he's now ascended, seated on the throne, has opened the scrolls, the scrolls of uh, Revelation 5. I believe opening those scrolls was the kind of opening of the Father's will for human history. So he probably knows at this point, but not sure. Good question. He's omniscient. All right, so it's in the Father's time. Um, it's, it's in the Father's perspective on time as well. Second uh, Peter 3 is almost a humorous passage where people are saying, well, where is he? He said he was coming back. This was 2,000 years ago, and they were saying this. Where is he? Why hasn't he returned yet? And so Peter says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So this, is, this passage is clearly about the second coming and is clearly meant to say, God thinks about time differently than we do. So we can't say that he's being slow. It will happen at the right time. Um, I'm just going to finish this at the right time section and, and we'll, we'll be done. Uh, so the, the Father's purposes are going to be fulfilled in history. The part of it being the right time is that he has a plan for history. And part of that plan for history we can see in Ephesians 1. It says, a plan which, uh, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. All of time has a plan to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's plan for all of time is Christ and uniting all things to him. And he will know when that plan is complete. The other purpose that we can see in Scripture is God's purpose through tribulation. This is a, this is a hard purpose of God. Um, but Revelation 6 on next page, page 4, um, we, we have this picture of the souls beneath the altar who have been martyred. And they're saying, how long, Lord? Avenge us. Would you return to earth and set things right? And in verse 11, partway through Revelation 6, verse 11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the Lord even knows the number of martyrs that will be filled on the last day. And he is telling them that number is not yet complete. So wait. So he's got a purpose in tribulation, a purpose in Christ. He's got a purpose in repentance that we just read. Part of why he hasn't returned. He, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's giving time for repentance. This is the age of grace. That's, that's good news, and that's part of why he delays. And we will stop there with a moment for a couple more questions, if we have any. Michael. Could you talk to them, too? Could you talk to them, too? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know the Damascus Post, but I have to mm -hmm. 
Yes. 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 That was week one. Yes. 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 Thank you. Mm-hmm. Paul. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to talk about it now because I don't see that as in any way connected to the end times. So it doesn't fit into any of the lectures that I have because I don't see it as particularly fitting in. It is a dispensational perspective that expects a rebirth of Israel, a refounding of the temple, and all of that. I don't, maybe there is going to be a refounding of the temple. That's fine. But it won't be the. The living God will not dwell in that temple because his temple on earth right now is the church. No. Yep. I knew this was going to be the one where people are like, really? You're a Christian? Like, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, we'll we'll get there as uh, let's wait till Revelation six. <laughs> yes, yeah, I know, I know, yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Okay, so when in Second Peter, when it says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, are those angels? No, I don't think those are angels. I think that is in reference the complete rebuilding of the universe as we know it. Yeah. So this is this is a new heavens and new earth language. Um, it is apocalyptic type language. So I'm not sure that we should expect a universal fire in the literal sense. But we should expect something of a dramatic rebirth and a complete judgment of all that was wicked and fallen and cursed in the old world. The, the fire may, may, may be literal, but whether it's literal or figurative, whew, either way, it's kind of a big deal. So that, yeah, that's the end of this age and the inauguration of the age to come. And with that, let's have some breakfast. Listen, thank you for being here on the earliest church day of the year.